0: I have really enjoyed these studies in the Minor Prophets. We'll be taking a little break here during the Christmas season from the Minor Prophets, but then we'll be coming back to them. Um, We didn't get all the Minor Prophets, so we'll be coming back to them in January. But God has unique messages in... The Minor Prophets for Us. Not often are people who are dying able to give last words of exhortation to uh, their family or words, expression of love, because oftentimes death comes suddenly. Um, oftentimes they're not able to talk <clears throat> But when my father passed away, um, he was able to give me some words of exhortation that God brings them back to my mind and and they are like a, an anchor in the midst of the storms of life. And last words often have unique... Um, importance and meaning to them. And the book of Malachi is the last words of God for 400 years. So you think of it. God had planned that there would be 400 years of silence from God. No message from God no prophet speaking the words of God, none of that. And so this was the last message that was given. So it really adds to the importance of this. So God, this is the last message I'm giving. This is what I am going to focus on. And so as we look at the book of Malachi, it it. Not that it is more important than any other book of the Bible, but it helps us to see the sense of urgency. The Jews had returned to the land with Nehemiah. They saw the second temple rebuilt, and, and now it had been a hundred years since <clears throat> that great working of God with Nehemiah and Ezra And in that hundred years of blessing and prosperity, the priests and the people had become lax in their worship to God, apathetic in their service to God, and God was not satisfied at all with them. So he raised up Malachi to rebuke the people for their neglect of true worship, and he called them to repentance. And through it, as you've been reading through it and studying it, you notice he uses a question and answer, a statement and a question and an answer, and it's, it's going back and forth, and, and he used this. And he raised up Malachi with a severe, uh, strong message. He uses words that cut and burn to the very heart of those that are listening, trying to awaken their consciences to return to God, to repent. And through it, God refers to himself as the king, as the master, as the father, and he says that he is to be feared. We, The last verse we read in chapter 1. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. It's interesting this word that is used here, a term used throughout the Bible, but in particular in the Old Testament, refers to someone with a great reverence for the Lord that arises out of two things. An awareness of His love and, on the other hand, an awareness of His wrath. And those two things join together to help us to realize what it is to fear God, to reverence God. And throughout all of history, there are various pendulums that swing. And we are a result of the culture that we live in. And if you were to ask the average person, even average believer today, their picture, their image of God the Father... Generally speaking, I think the response would be um, he's a, a, a merciful father, he is a kind father, he is a forgiving father, he is full of loving kindness, and all of those things would be true. It almost is a result of... Previous generations that if you were to ask them, it would be God is a holy God. He brings judgment on people. He hates sin and almost like whack-a-mole. He's looking to whack someone down. So this is how cultures work. If something's over here in the pendulum, often the next generation swings it over here. And then the next generation responds to that and brings it back. Seldom do we ever get the balance in the middle. God is a God of wrath and God is a God of love. And because of that, He is to be feared. He is to be held in awe and respect and... Throughout this book, he says to them, he makes several references to the fear of the Lord. And sometimes we get lost in the illustrations that he gives that are really illustrations to them to show them that they don't really respect God as they should. And so we want to look at those. Evidences that we do not fear the Lord. Number one, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, I'm not going to read it all, but God said, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, wherein have you loved us? So, right from the start, God manifests the expression of his love. And it's clearly evident that God has manifested his love. we don't have time to go into it for the children of Israel, but it's important for us making application today to realize God's great love for us, that God saw us in our desperate condition as sinners that, All of us have sinned and completely fallen short of the glory of God. That the very best we do is is like a weak bow that can't reach its target. We fall short from the glory of God. God's holiness. Our sin falls short. And in His love, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin. Something we couldn't do something no church can do, no works can do, no baptism can do. He alone paid the penalty for our sin, and He offers it to us that we might have forgiveness of sin. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's no question of God's love. And yet, we often question His love. God, do you care about me? Why did this happen in my life? God, it doesn't seem like you love me because I don't see this prayer answered. Or, God, it doesn't seem like you love me because they seem to be blessed. More than I am, I'm trying hard and 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 it, this goes wrong, and that goes wrong, and we doubt his love, and it all comes back to because we're not surveying the wondrous cross. We're not thinking on what he's done to r- rescue us from condemnation, from the the fires of hell, and give us forgiveness freely through Jesus Christ, through nothing that we did, nothing that we deserved, it is a gift of God. And yet, when we don't have a a respect of God, we'll doubt His love. Well, it doesn't seem like you love me. It doesn't seem like He loves me. I should have all of the wrath of God upon me, but I am now forgiven in Jesus Christ. So initially, the first evidence is that we do not fear the Lord, is we doubt His love. Then in the passage that we read, a second evidence that we do not fear the Lord is that we dishonor His name. And let me just let me just stop here a moment. Over 20 times in this book, it refers to the Lord as the Lord of hosts. And, and we don't fully grasp what that means. That means He is the captain of all the armies of heaven. He is the Lord of all the forces of the universe. He is the Commander-in-Chief. He is the Lord of hosts. So, over 20 times in this book, he's making reference to that, and he's reminding them, this is who I am. This is my power. This is my authority. This is my greatness. And then he says, if I am a father... Where is my honor? If I am a master, where is your respect for me? He says, I am the king. I am the master. I am your father. But he says, you dishonor my name. And they said, how have we dishonored you? And honestly, if you were to, to take a look into their practices at that day, you wouldn't notice anything. You'd think, wow, every, everything's going along fine. They're, they're making sacrifices to the Lord as they needed to do before Christ came. And, and everything seems to be going along fine. And God says, no. You wouldn't bring these leftover sacrifices to your governor, but you bring them to me. He says, I am the supreme authority. I am God over all. And you know that I am deserving of the best of the Lamb. And you're going and grabbing this lamb that has a broken leg and won't be worth anything at the market, and you're coming and offering that to me, and he says, I am sick of it. He uses some strong language. He said, I wish there were someone to come and shut the door so that you wouldn't even have access to make these offerings to me. That's exactly what he said here. He said, you dishonor my name. Notice verse 13 of chapter 1. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it. Oh, what a weariness it is for us to come and offer these offerings to the Lord. What a weariness it is. What a weariness it is that I need, I'm supposed to carve out time in my day to read the Bible. What a weariness it is that they're making me go to church today. What a weariness it is to extended time alone with God. What a weariness it is. You know where that weariness comes from? Because we've never seen the greatness of God. When you don't see the greatness of God, that He is the Lord of hosts, when you don't see the greatness of God, you are bored with God. And people are bored with God today in good, sound churches because it's been a long time since they really focused on the greatness of God. And when you don't see the greatness of God, And when it's not personal in your life, then you are bored with God, and the world looks much more exciting to us. So here's a problem we have. In Christianity, we're not seeing the greatness of God, and we know the Bible says, love not the world, but the world looks pretty enticing to us, and... And so we say, no, I'm not supposed to love the world. But we don't love God, and we are caught here in no man's land, and and it is miserable. And it all comes back to seeing the greatness and the glory of God. And when you see the greatness and the glory of God, the things of this world grow strangely dim. See, we're all prone to worship things. We're all prone to look to people. And people will always disappoint us. Things of this world. But God never will. And when we don't see the greatness of God, we find it a weariness. A weariness. Okay, here we are. It's the thing we do. Sunday morning, and I mean, we, we can sing every morning that breaks. There are mercies anew, but it's like we've never even thought about His mercies for a whole week. We've never reflected on the greatness of God. And because He's not great, we are bored with God. And the things of this life then are what excite us and they're only going to be very, very temporal. And it is. We can... This is a strong message that he gives and I want to make the application in our own life. We can, we can come into service and it's kind of like... But as soon as we're out, Hey, how'd the Hawkeye Cyclones do? How was your hunting? Hey, I went to the thrift store. Hey, we come alive! Why? We don't know the glory of God. You know, we glory in all these other things. I'm not saying it's bad. TJ Hawkinson's from Sheraton. He's a professional football player. Woo! That man, Sheraton's never had anything like that. I've followed a lot of athletes in my life. From a little kid, I I idolized athletes, and then I found out they were using drugs or their marriage broke up or or they got old and couldn't swing a bat and couldn't run? What? Everybody in this world will be diminished. But not God. And that's why God's given this severe message to them. He's saying, you're loving all these other things that are going to fall through the fingers, your fingers, fall through your life, and you will have nothing. But He says, I'm here and what are you bringing to me? You're dishonoring me. This is a disgrace to me. So um, this last week, Marilyn made one of our favorite pies, rhubarb, black raspberry pie. Mm. So we still have a little bit left at home. It's wrapped in a tinfoil. It's getting soggy now. Can you imagine if tomorrow morning I went in to the governor's office and said, Hey, I want to, my wife made this pie last Tuesday, but I want to give it to you. I've eaten some more off it, and you wouldn't think of doing that. And yet we give God our leftovers. Leftovers. And God says, you don't fear me, you don't reverence me, you don't understand my love, and you don't understand my wrath when you're bringing me these things that dishonor my name. He goes on in chapter 2 and verse 10 through verse 16. And again, we don't have time to read all of these, but He says, Hasn't God created all of you? And he says, You come and you cover my altar with your tears, and you act like you're repenting. And he says, I, I, I'm not going to regard your offering anymore. In verse 13. And yet you say, Why? Why won't you regard this? And in verse 14, Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did He not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. That's why one. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. So God says, an evidence is you disregard my design. And the illustration he gives is in the home. God designed the marriage to be a picture of God's love for us. He designed it to be a place of security. He designed it to be a place of of genuine love one for another. And he says, I see you coming and offering these gifts before me and and crying in repentance. And if you were to look at it, you'd say, Wow, they must be spiritual. And he says, No, I don't I don't even want to hear it. Why? I see how you live in your home. You've dealt treacherously with the wife of your youth. You don't love her. You're selfish. You don't manifest Colossians 3, our memory verses in your home, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, clothed with humbleness of mind. He says, I'm, I see what goes on in your home. And in 1 Peter 3, he says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor under the wife as under the weaker vessel, lest your prayers be hindered. The same principle of Malachi. He said, you have put away my design for the home and for the family. And he says, I don't even want to hear. Until you make things right. He says, I don't want to hear it. He goes on and he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? So he says, when we don't fear the Lord, we weary the Lord by coming to him and twisting what is right and what is wrong, or by demanding God, God, where is justice? How come you're not bringing justice? This is wrong. Where is justice? And we are the ones that are dictating to God what He ought to do. And God says, I'm weary with your coming to me. See, the heart of love, that God is a God of love, we say God never wearies of us coming to Him. He wearies of us coming to Him with a hypocritical heart. He's weary of us coming to Him to get Him on our program rather than us on His program. He, he wearies of us coming to Him when we haven't bowed the knee to Him. We, we sang this morning, bow the knee, and when, when we understand that, bow the knee, He is King of all the ages. Bow the knee. We weary Him when we keep coming otherwise. We weary God with our questions. Then he says, in chapter 3, and we need to keep moving through this, he said, an evidence that you don't respect me is that you've stolen from me. <clears throat> well, where did we steal from you, Lord? He says, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. And I'm I'm not even going to go down and deal with this. We're in the grace age today, okay? So you can say tithes is the Old Testament law. All I'll say is Abraham tithed before there was the law, all right? But I don't want us to get caught up in that. We're in the grace age, so grace age should go above and beyond. And he says, you say that you love me, but you don't give me what should be coming to me. So you have stolen from me. We know what it's like in a personal manner when someone extorts the funds of God's work. And we find that very offensive, and it is. But when we do not give to God, we show we don't respect Him. We show we don't fear Him. Every one of these we could preach a series on, but we don't have time. Let me mention one more evidence that we do not respect God or fear God. In chapter 3, verse 13, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. For what profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up, they even tempt God and go free. We speak ill of God. We say, ah, it doesn't pay to serve the Lord. I've done this in vain. We speak ill that God hasn't kept His promises. It's useless to serve God. Here, I've been serving God for all these years and this person hasn't. And look, everything seems to be going their way. And we say the promises of God aren't true. I haven't seen Him do it this in my life. And we speak ill of God because we do not respect Him. So let me just quickly, how to learn the fear of God. <clears throat> Number one, look up. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold, I send my messengers, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom is it you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The reality of God's coming. The Old Testament people look forward to His coming in Bethlehem. We look forward to His coming in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And to think today I could be standing before God giving account of my life to God. That ought to make me respect God. That ought to make me say, Whoa! Accounting, accounting day come could be today. Am I ready? Am I prepared? Have I been living in such a manner that honors God? He is coming suddenly. He says. So look up. But then, in chapter four—well, excuse me, chapter three. And notice if you look in verse 7, Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances. So he's saying, from the days of the fathers in these hundred years since the great revival, you've gone away from my ordinances. Now turn to chapter 4 and hear what he says in verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, remember the law of Moses. Remember God's word. You look up and then you, and understand He's coming again. That ought to make me love Him and also stand in awe of His judgment. But now I look into the Word of God. I read the Word of God, and as I do. It tells me about the greatness of God. It tells me this God is so great. He calls the stars by name. He spoke and everything came into existence. This is a great God. This is a great God who parted the Red Sea. This is a great God that that raised the dead. This is a great God that fed 5,000. On and on and on we go. And that's our God. But it's ho-hum. Yeah, I've heard all those Bible stories. I was a little kid and heard those Bible stories. In fact, you got part of it wrong. It wasn't 5,000. It was 5,000 men that he had. Let's get this right. And we got all the dots and I's. The I's dotted and the T's crossed. But we don't worship God. We don't say, man, oh, man. What an amazing God you are. Because we don't see Him in the Word. We neglect the Word of God. So you look into the Word and then going back back to the um, chapter 3 about tithes and offerings. No, I'm not going to say to you. I'm not going to preach on this. But the whole crux of this is this. You honor me with my first fruits and you prove me to see if I'm not a great God. So he's saying, How many of you have ever heard this? I double dog dare you. How many of you have ever heard that, huh? Just the old timers. That meant your manhood's being challenged. I double dog dare you. Oh, yeah? Come on, let's go. I was getting hot anyway, all right? <laughs> God's saying, I dare you. Try me. Prove me. And you know what? When you do, you say, wow! We can live better on 90% than we do on 100 We live better on 80%. We live better. Whoa! What a great God! This doesn't make sense. But it does with God. And you have joy. Because you're proving God and you're saying, Wow, this is true. That's in just one area. Another area, you you go to God's Word and He says, You need to go seek forgiveness in this. And you think, I don't want to. But you say, I'm going to obey. So you prove God and you go obey Him. And the peace that comes in your heart, the joy of having a clear conscience, there's nothing like it. So prove God. And then notice chapter 3 and verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord, there it is again, spoke one to another. And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on His name. Those who feared the Lord spoke one to another. Fellowship with other people who fear God. It's like, wow, there were a lot of people that didn't fear God, but God raised up a remnant and there were people that feared God and they gathered together at church maybe. They gathered together and spoke one to another, and encouraged one another, and God looked down, and He saw it, and He said, write that in the book of remembrance. I'm I'm going to remember them. You want to be remembered? Fear God. And notice quickly the rewards of those that hear Him. Verse 16, And the Lord listened and heard them. Okay, if you fear God, you'll be heard by God, and he remembered them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. Do you want to be remembered by God? You know, you get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life by calling unto Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, but I want my name in the Fear of God book too. Not only here's my child, but here's my favorite children right here. You say God doesn't play favorites. There's some whose names weren't written in this book, right? That's what it tells me. There were a lot of people that didn't get their names written in that book because they didn't fear God. But there were some that feared God and God remembered them. And notice what it says. I lost what it said, all right? So a book of remembrance was written before him for those that fear him, who meditate on his name. And notice verse 12. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day that I make up my jewels, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So you will have intimacy with God. God said, there's someone that fears God. Hey, They're my precious jewels. They're, as he said here, they shall be mine. That means in intimacy, a close fellowship, a close relationship with God. They will be mine. And then notice chapter 4 and verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day, on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. You will have victory with God. I mean, you you read that. The Son of righteousness will come, healing in his wings. You'll be fat. This is when he means you'll be blessed, all right? I'm not saying go home and say I'm fat so I'm blessed. But what in the terminology he's using, you will be blessed abundantly. And I love this. You shall trample the wicked. When when my favorite team wins big, which hardly ever happens, my wife will say, did you enjoy that? Did I enjoy it? 55 to nothing. We annihilated them. She says, that wasn't even a contest. You like competition? No.
1: <laughs> I,
0: I like where you know the, the final is already determined by halftime. You can sit back and enjoy it. Yeah, whoa, man. You know, put their nose in it. That's the terminology. You shall trample the wicked. They shall be ashes under the soul. Oh, that's not my God of love. That's God right there. He hates evil. And he says, I will trample them under the soles of your feet. This says the Lord of the host of the armies of heaven. This is the God we serve and he is to be feared and he we we sometimes think we're doing God a favor by reading the Bible and we fall asleep during it and we're daydreaming we think we're doing God a favor by coming to church He said if you don't love me I, I'd sooner lock the doors than to have you going through the motions And this is the last message that he gave for 400 years. And it is as pertinent and relevant to us today as ever before. Do you love God? Do you fear God? Do you know God? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would cause each of us to take personal examination in our hearts and lives. And Lord, I pray today that you would cause us to turn from our ways and turn to you. Lord, I pray if there is one person here today who has never called upon you to forgive their sins and save their soul, Lord, I pray today before they leave, they would do that or mention it to someone that could help them today to know that they are a child of you, to know their sins are forgiven. And then, Lord, I pray for every one of us. It's so easy. I'm ashamed to say this, Lord. It shouldn't be this way, but it is so easy for us to get lax and and careless in our worship in our relationship with you, to think, oh, that's good enough for God. Lord, I pray that we would have a renewed love and respect for you. And that our names would be written as those that feared you and bring honor to you and in whom you delight. So, Lord, do what is necessary in our lives. May we look up. May we look into Your Word. May we know the joy of proving Your promises true. And, Lord, may we one another build up one another in the faith that You would be honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.